if you design it around the, the travel needs of everyone, right? So not just the 2% of people you catch when you run a survey, right? Or not just the cars you count on, these, on the roads you've installed your sensors, but we think you should really incorporate the needs of all citizens and also not the needs five years ago or 10 years ago as, as some of these surveys are. Right? You want to base your design of transportation systems on very recent data and all-encompassing data about how all your citizens move around the city. In this episode, I'm talking with Georg Polzer, computer scientist and co-founder of the ETH spin-off company Terralytics. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. Georg, when did you start being interested in computer science? That was... And how? What was the catalyst? I guess that, that started... I think during school, there was a Lego robotics league that was taking place. And I, was, I happened to be part of that group of, of people and, and kids basically competing in that Lego robotics competition. And we ended up actually qualifying for the German final round here in Berlin way back. And I think it was one of the early touch points with computer science kind of topics. And then also, of course, at, at home, I started putting together my own computers and... Yeah, I think in that kind of uh, middle high school um, age, I, I started to get exposed to that. How did you come to attend the ETH? Because you grew up in Germany, right? I realize they're next door to each other, but there are wonderful technical institutes in Germany as well. That is true, yes. I mean, I think the ETH is, is special, right? I mean, there are other German universities that are playing in a similar range in terms of research and education excellence. But I think ETH mm -hmm. is, is one of the very few ones, I think, in Europe that really play on the kind of the global league. And yeah, I think that to me was was interesting, right? And appealing as a first reason to go there, combined with also the fact that Zurich is a beautiful place to be <laughs> in Switzerland, which is a beautiful country. That was probably more of a coincidence, but also some of, of um, my friends from my high school actually also happened to attend ETH. So we... A little group of, of people actually went, went there, of, of Germans, I think was a, was a great decision and I had a, a fantastic time there. And you mentioned Berlin. You recently moved back. You had been living in New York, is that right? And now you moved back to Berlin? Yeah, I moved quite a bit actually in my life since I'm a little kid. My parents, due to their jobs, moved around quite a bit um, within Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then, of course, I went to a boarding school for the, past, uh, for the last four high school years That was in uh, Naumburg in Sachsen-Anhalt. That's a really in the middle of nowhere. It's a little like a boarding <laughs> school and, and you just have vineyards mm -hmm. and forest around it. But it's a beautiful place. Sounds pretty idyllic. <laughs> exactly. And then I moved from there to Zurich and start, yeah, started the company and then moved to New York for a while for the company and then went back um, to Berlin. What? caused you to leave New York. New York's a pretty fun place to live. It's great, yeah. We had a great time there. My older daughter was born in New York and we just realized that living so far away from your family and your and having yeah little support besides professional um, staff, so to say, right, and, and maybe some friends. I think it's just really tough when both wife and husband are working, right? So we want to be closer to the family 
And also raising a kid in New York is, is, is a tough environment, right? I think if you're grown up, it's, oui. it's, it's great. But I think for it's not necessarily a place um, for kids, I would say. You lived in Manhattan or Brooklyn? Yeah, or? we did. Yeah, in the West Village. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the West. I lived in the West Village for many years. <laughs> oh, great. And now you're back in Berlin. How is Berlin? As a, Berlin is not an idyllic little village. Berlin's a global, intense city. It is, but it has those this very interesting characteristic of something they, they call Keats. So Keats is like um, kind of Berlin slang, so to say, for for like sub areas of the city that mm -hmm. that kind of feel like little sub village even within the city. You'll be surprised how many kind of quiet streets and little parks and squares um, you find there. These are not necessarily the places where where tourists go. Like actually, actually there's some uh, very livable areas within Berlin that that aren't as yeah big and and uh, touristy as as others. Very so, very yeah. Cool. We, we have a great place here, and it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely more more quiet and livable and walkable for sure than than New York is. So while you were at the ETH, you were a founding president of something called the Entrepreneur Club. Mm -hmm. yeah, Did indeed, I read yeah. that right? Did you start that yeah. from scratch? There hadn't been an entrepreneur club. Yeah, that was surprising, actually. Yeah, yeah it is surprising. Exactly <laughs> um, right. I mean, back then, way back was was 2010 or something. Yeah, but back then there there wasn't a student association focused around entrepreneurship. There was something similar, which I'm very grateful for, which is called ETH Juniors. So ETH Juniors is, is another student association that's operating some kind of um, student-run consultancy, and I was part of that um, group of students. And which gave me a lot of yeah, just gro personal growth and also lifelong friends that, that developed during that time. But you usually do this for one year and then afterwards you're back to normal student life. And I was already thinking, ETH Juniors already teaches you some of those entrepreneurial skills mm -hmm. and interests. And yeah, I just noticed there wasn't any association around the topic. And there were some other people who, who said, we need to change that. And so together we... We started the club and I'm, I'm really happy that this club, the Emperor Club, still exists and is thriving, I think. It's, a, it's a quite an active group of people. So That's you great. did the entrepreneurial thing. You saw a problem, <laughs> you saw a market gap and you said, I can exactly. do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fantastic. So what was the catalyst for you to start Terolytics? How did you go from studying your master's and your bachelor in computer science to saying, I know enough to take that and turn it into a entity that's going to make a difference. And by the way, Terralytics looks very cool in terms of the data that you look at. Thank you. Yeah, it was pr probably less planned as you would maybe expect, right? I was in, during my master's, I was a research assistant on one of the computer science research groups mm -hmm. led by Professor Donald Kosman, who in the meantime actually is in a quite senior position at Microsoft in Seattle. But he used to be a professor back then at ETH, and we, we were doing research during that time in, in an area that was just emerging back then. And today we just take that for, for granted, right? But back then this term big data was new. Up until that point, like the mid-2000s, data used to be just very clean kind of Excel sheet records right? Right. or database records, right? Like you have a right. name and an address and a, and a value. And like all a, those different columns. Uh, yeah, like Pivot really tables, nicely, but... nicely organized, right? right? And what changed was that the concept of big data was that you would start to tackle unstructured data sets like image and, and like just free text on the internet. 
So it's, it's both unstructured, but also very large. Like the size of the data sets really became big. And that was also enabled by the fact that the storage costs went way down over time, but you just also could afford to store much more data. And so the question then was, how do I deal with these large amounts of unstructured data sets? How do I efficiently analyze this da these data sets and, and do calculations on top of that? And, and we did research in that area and just felt there being marked opportunity that not just we at ETH, but also, and we were doing research in, together with some of the big companies that um, like one of the, the Zurich-based banks, for example, who that we saw in the industry, these kind of data sets are starting to emerge and being collected and, and the need for analyzing those is, is starting to grow. And we said, let's start a company around that. And so this was, I think in hindsight, one of the lessons I've definitely learned, this was very much a hammer looking for a nail kind of um, founding story, which is actually not a good one. Like it's a tough one. And it took us quite a while actually to find the right nail. Uh, that, that was part of, of the journey we went through it in, in, during Charlytics. And from what I can see on the site, the nail that you work with has to do with transportation data sets, yeah, working correct. with urban centers or cross urban centers. Can you talk about the problems that now that your nail has been defined. Mm -hmm. What are the problems that your nails solves? Yes, what we see is that transportation is still very inefficient. It's still very polluting. It's still very noisy. It's still it's transportation. Not is, We're it's not, not, it's not, it should be working Boston, much better. Right? We are not public transportation here. Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we have a, a, a big, big part of, of our business is in the US actually. So I'm very familiar with these issues. I'm going to be at tier B in Washington on the beginning of January. Yeah. Transportation we, research board. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you, you know that. I, I Do you have some interactions in, with that industry as well? Or? I work with the Department of Energy, which interacts a lot with the Department of Transportation on oh, issues around, yeah. around EVs and transport and design. Mm -hmm. Plus, mm -hmm. I have a daughter who works for a company called Mobicon, which does street design oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and transportation. Okay, great. Yeah, so, so I'm sure she will attend Tier B as well. <laughs> exactly. <then. laughs> Yeah, yeah, but so so back to the issue we are we're tackling that uh, we, we think transportation can work better mm -hmm. if you design it around the, the travel needs of everyone, right? So not just the two percent of people you catch when you run a survey, right? Or not just the cars you count on these on the roads you've installed your sensors, mm -hmm. but we think you should really incorporate the needs of all citizens and also not the needs five years ago or 10 years ago as, as some of these surveys are right you want to base your design of transportation systems on very recent data and all-encompassing data about how all your citizens move around the city and really also reflect the needs of more vulnerable parts of the population like lower income parts of the population and elderly people who have special needs in terms of getting from a to b like those needs you want to incorporate in, in the way you design transportation systems. And so we do that by collecting large amounts of location, anonymous location data sourced from telecom network operators and from GPS data sets that come from smartphones. And we turn that into the information of not only how many people move from A to B, mm -hmm. but also which road do they use, which mode of transport do they use, because oh, you Which can track the speed, so you can figure out if they're walking or taking a Absolutely, bus. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Or if Which, they're on yeah. a train. Oh, that's yeah, very cool. Correct. Mm -hmm. There's yeah, an exactly. equity aspect 
to access and an equity aspect to that approach. That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, represent, represent the needs of, of all the parts of the population and not just the people who can, who can afford a car, right? Um, or can afford the gas to, to drive to work every day. Also, the, the transit is, is very close to my heart. So one of the questions that comes up around this is, presumably you use anonymized data, mm-hmm. but how do you address, there must still be concerns about data privacy mm-hmm. and using the data for not, I wouldn't say illicit, but n- not always for the right reasons. Can you talk about that? And how do you address these questions of data protection and data privacy? First of all, we started out in Germany, which is probably one of the hardest markets to pick in terms of data privacy laws. And I think that prepared us well for a global rollout. So in, in Germany, we are yeah, basically complying with all the the privacy laws that, that exist in Germany, but also in, in Europe. And we do that by restricting the types of questions we allow to be asked on the mo- movement data we provide. Hmm. So we, for example, limit the size of the groups of people that are part of a result of a query to, to include at least five people. So it's always at least five people. That means if you then say, me as a transit operator, I want to understand how many people traveled on this route between this station, this station, and this hour, you will see a not available value, so to say, if there are less than five people traveling in that hour on that line. And then also some other approaches are, for example, that we limit the size of the, so what we allow our transport planning customers to do is we allow them to upload their own zoning system onto our platform because they want to, they have a usually very specific way how to divide up the city into so-called transport analysis zones, TAZs. And we make sure that those zones aren't too small, right? So you cannot hone in into a specific house, for example, right? So we have a number of... Oh, so you can't trace uh, a person to their home. Correct, yes. We make sure those zones are large enough that you cannot do that, for example. And then also, again, applying this limit of at least five people in a group. Like These are approaches that we take to to really uh, minimize that risk. So one of the interesting research I was reading about transportation is not just ensuring that you design for everyone, regardless, presumably, of economic situation, but also by gender. Women travel differently. Children travel differently. Older people travel differently. How would you, and theoretically, transportation should be designed differently for those different Mm -hmm. groups. Is there some way you can use the data that you see to help cities and transport authorities design for that? Yeah, definitely. And I think also us from a product perspective, we're still in the early innings of of really building out that vision. So I think the first step that we take is that we ensure those people are represented in those data sets in the first place, right? Like when you, for example, look at who are the ones who take more transit versus cars, right? Like these are specific groups of people. and, And we make sure that all those different groups of people are represented in our picture of human movement and, and mobility needs. So that's the first step. And then the next step is sure that certain parts of the city are represented well, like maybe lower income areas of, of the city, right? Thanks to the data sets we use, you, you don't have a lower um, sample size in those areas versus higher income areas, right? So that's, that's very important. You can balance that, out the weighting. Very right, cool. correct. A few years ago, you moved to more of a 
senior executive overseeing role at Terralytics yeah. as chairman of the board. Are there other projects you're working on now? I mean, of course, I have two kids, which is a... Those are two major projects, complete startups. Two major, two major projects, so that's for sure. And, and But the answer is no. So I'm still very operationally involved. For me, that, that was actually a... So that, that change to a chairman position was also coming together with a... Taking over the leadership of the software development division of, of the company. So it was actually more moving to a more technical role again. And we brought in an, an external professional CEO who had a few more years of experience than me just fresh out of university. And yeah, that, that was, I think, an important decision for the company. Very Bill and Gates so, of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, actually, so Bill Gates, didn't he stay on? As, he did, as but he also for, brought in professional managers. Yeah, that's for sure. That's a theme as a technical founder that you bring in those external support for sure. And I think it was a... Right decision. Michael, who's now the CEO of mm -hmm. the company, I think he's fantastic. He's coming from the transportation domain. And that's probably just one of the that's key learnings that, that, that I have is that ETH doesn't teaches you the, the technical skills, right? But not at all the domain skills, mm -hmm. right? And especially as we found this product market fit in the transportation sector, you really want to make sure that very quickly you augment the team with people who come from that space. So that, that was for us as a company, a very positive development. Very cool. And in that role, we talked about the, emer the contributing factors to the emergence, quote unquote, of the concept of big data, this unstructured data and the mm -hmm. dramatic drop in the cost of storage. But it At that time, there was also a surge in these tools that we used to call machine learning, right? And the mm -hmm. ability to yeah. apply, which I have to confess, I've never quite understood the difference where machine learning ends and AI begins. It, it, there's yeah, a, that's a very blurry. <laughs> it, it's blurry. Yeah. But with this explosion of interest in generative AI and large data models, LLMs or whatever they're called, how are you seeing that play out in the work mm -hmm. that you're leading at Terralytics? Yeah. So first of all, we are applying methods that used to be called machine learning and that you would call AI now to to do quite a few things in our computation pipeline. So, mm -hmm. for example, the detection of mode of transport based on very fuzzy cell tower pings, right? They are just, they, if you look at them, they look, you as a person wouldn't necessarily be, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint this is now a train or a car mm -hmm. but as you train those models they actually become very good at doing that and, and better than humans so i think this is one area where we apply those methods to detect mode of transport out of these huge data sets and i think in terms of generative ai and lms we haven't built functionality into the prog yet i think one area that that i think is interesting is in the interpretation of data and outputs i think the uh, lms are very powerful when you enable the user to ask simple questions like what should I do based on those those results that Terralytics is telling me like where should I um, build a bike lane for example and I think that um, instead of me having to juggle the data and slice and dice the data to the answer I'm really creating this more kind of conversational interaction with the product and that's, that's something for us that's very exciting and something we'll yeah, want to add as, as features. How did your studies in computer science at ETH and your sort of broader experience prepare you for what you're doing now? So, of course, first of all, there's the subject matter in terms of just building software, building algorithms, building scalable computation systems. That's something that you learn at ETH and ETH is, is very strong at. 
And I think it's not necessarily the specific programming languages or yeah technologies. I think it's much more the, also the thinking and the the more fundamental abilities that you learn during ETH. What I when I was a student, what I've felt was very tough in the first few years were these basic math and physics classes. But I think in, in hindsight, I'm, I'm grateful for that time. Like it, it teaches you, um, yeah, way of thinking and just being rigorous and detailed in, in the way you work, which was, I think, very helpful. So I think that's how ETH helped for sure. It helped a number of my, my co-founder was a was a student at ETH. So a number of really key employees who are still working in, in the team, they are alumni of, of ETH, right? Who graduated so with the ecosystem then, played right? a role. Yeah, so I think the ecosystem played a role. So I think, and then of course, also without Donald Kosman, who's one of our co-founders, I don't think we would have gotten where we are now. So I think ETH has contributed in a number of meaningful ways in, uh, to, to Terralytics. Georg, thank you. That was a great conversation. <laughs> and uh, yeah thank you for the time thank you I'm going to close with some questions that we always ask our guests mm-hmm. to start when you were young maybe when you did that Lego competition or before what did you want to be when you grew up oh I think that changed multiple times and that's healthy I don't think I ever thought I would want to become a entrepreneur or a computer scientist. I think doctor was, I think I remember. Um, but yeah, of course, then also what your parents are doing is sometimes interesting and then not like the you swing between those two extremes. Yeah, I think, it's, I think these were the, the kind of ideas I had. And I'm glad I end up where, where I am now. And what sparks your curiosity today? What are you learning today? So I think the one area I'm definitely interested in is this whole acceleration around AI, LMs. That's definitely something I'm, I'm very interested about and, and also, yeah, just experimenting a little bit in my, in my spare time with. So that's fun and, and, and interesting. And, so does that and of mean course the, you downloaded yeah. the chat GPT function on your phone, the app? Well, I think a little bit beyond that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, right. among others, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the, the other area is also in terms of the, what we're doing at Terralytics is something that's really also like a, a lifelong mission for me to make cities work better. And for example, I've started here a grassroots um, organization in my neighborhood here to, I'm not sure whether you came across the, the concept of super blocks in Barcelona, so where they just yes. they, they close streets and, and turn them into parks. And I think that's just right. a fantastic way of, of thinking about cities. Reclaim it from the, from the, from from the, the cars. cars I mean, yeah. it's, it's still, with two kids, it's still crazy to me that I need to watch out for them um, before they can step in front of my house. They can't do that alone. And like, that needs to change. Like the, of course you want to have places where cars can drive fast because you need to go to work or you need to deliver a package or something. But I think there are parts of the city that just should be turned into something more human focused. And um, my personal activities around that really fits with the company's goals as well. Very cool. And what are the books that are on your nightstand? What, what are the things you're reading or the podcasts you listen to these days? Yeah, so so right now I'm, I'm reading the biography of Elon Musk, which is great. Just very, very impressed by his story. And then also besides that is, is a half-read book about the philosophy of biking. Again, from a city design perspective, that's something I'm interested in. But also I'm a big fan of gravel biking. Not sure whether you're familiar with that, like off-road. What is it called? 
uh, gravel biking. So it's like an off-road, mm -hmm. high-speed racing, like bike racing, basically. So you go like off-road through the forest. And yeah, that's When you uh, say a big area. fan, does that mean you actually do it? I do. It is. Okay. <laughs> Just to make sure <laughs> I got that right. No, no. Okay. I, I, well, that's, I, I, that sounds both yeah. fun and a little bit scary, right? Because they're not, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you, you, you have branches and trees and pebbles yeah, of course, and yeah. Yeah, you wanna, rocks. You want to be prepared, but it's, uh, it's a great, great contrast to to living in a city, you know, like, in, like it's, it's great. If you just cycle a half an hour outside of Berlin, you suddenly are in the midst of, the, of nature and, and just uh, experiencing that is fantastic. Very, very cool. And when you go back to Zurich, as you are planning to coming mm -hmm. out, what's your favorite place in Zurich writ large or at the ETH? So as a transport enthusiast, of course, the Puli Bahn is, is oh, I just love that. that's the coolest. Uh, it's true. Yeah, that's the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is great. And then I think besides that, I think the lake is a big asset. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Georg. Really appreciated your time and the conversation. Thank you, Susan. And talk soon. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series. Telling the story of the alumni and friends at the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting edge research, science and people. The people who were there, people who are there and the people who will be there. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen and give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple or YouTube. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd like to close by thanking our producers, ETH Circle and LA Media, and especially by thanking you, our listeners, for joining us. Mm -hmm.